You're listening to the Strong Towns Podcast. Everyone and welcome to the Strong Towns podcast. This is Kia Wilson here, actually on my first solo hosting gig for Strong Towns. I'm really excited to be here talking to you a little more directly. For my first time out, I thought it would be fun if we did something a little different and unusual for Strong Towns. I got an email the other day from the creative team behind a really interesting project called Bulldozer, the Ballad of Robert Moses. And I thought that it would be interesting to talk about how Robert Moses would apply to a musical that is opening in New York City very shortly. So we're lucky today to have on the podcast the director of that musical, Karen Carpenter. Karen, hello. Thank you for being here. Hello. It's a pleasure. And it's also our privilege to have the writer of the musical, Peter Galperin. And Peter, I'm really excited to have you. Thanks for thanks for doing this with us this morning. It's our pleasure. So to start off, I know a lot of the Strong Towns audience will know exactly who Robert Moses is and what he did and might have some strong opinions on him. But I thought it would be nice to hear in uh, Peter's words first and then also in Karen's who Robert Moses was and what drew you to his story. Well, it was a long journey for me. Um, I, I first read about him probably about 20 years ago. Probably The Power Broker was my first exposure to him. When I read that book and living in New York at that time, um, but not a New York native, all of a sudden New York made a lot more sense to me, you know, why the subways were so dilapidated, all these highways and bridges that seemed to go off in different directions. Having moved to New York after college, I, I grew up in Seattle, New York just seemed so dysfunctional. So the, the, the fact that this guy was in charge of all construction of, you know, highways, bridges, tunnels, parks, uh, um, everything for, for over 45 years, I believe, and that he was not interested in public transportation, that, that all of a sudden that just made sense to me. Oh, this is why New York is the way it is. At the time, I remember thinking, oh, someone's going to make a great movie out of this. You know, uh, it's going to become a big epic. It'll be like uh, Lawrence of Arabia or Ben-Hur or something. And, and that never happened. So I took up the task, I guess, <laughs> at that yeah. point. Karen, what drew you to this story? You know, I'm a Jane Jacobs fan, I have to say, and I'm sure most of our listening audiences also, as I think probably Peter is now. I think what drew me to it was, first of all, Peter's music. It is a musical. Um, yeah. His music is very much set kind of at the point where Moses' downfall began, I would say, early 60s, the genre of music in the show. But also, musical theater has this ability to tell a very deep and dramatic story, but in a fun way. And it's a huge polarizing figure that we're about. Obviously, he was one of the most polarizing figures in New York political history, if not in, the, in, in all of the, in our national history. He was the most powerful unelected official ever in the United States. He figured out a way to take advantage of federal money and build all these huge projects that were purely his vision and uh, a singular one. And it's his vision we're stuck with. But the thing, but the thing that I find fascinating about him, I mean, I've biked over the Verrazano Narrows Bridge as Bike New York 2000. Um, I have enjoyed many a concert at Jones Beach. 
I like driving the Palisades Parkway or the Northern State Parkway. There are many of his projects that I have enjoyed, but at the same time, like Peter, I see the folly of many of the things he did. I mean, displacing a quarter of a million people to put in the Cross Bronx Expressway. I mean, many people would say we, we couldn't function in the way that we do. Not so many people could come in the city or leave the city uh, daily were we not to have the Cross Bronx. But at the same time, just mowing down whole neighborhoods, taking advantage or cre maybe he even created eminent domain. I don't, I don't know, Peter, you'd have to speak to that. But uh, I just find an incredible act of audacity. But then there was no one to challenge him. I mean, he was unelected. He was... He commanded money, he commanded power, and all the influence. He was a brilliant administrator, too. I mean, he, he, he wrote the bills in Albany uh, when he worked for Governor Al Smith that governed uh, public authorities. And he did this brilliant twist on, in, in writing those bills that the administrator of, of an authority, of a public authority, could never be removed from power. Well, you know, 10 years later, he was that administrator of all these public authorities. I don't know if that was uh, something he planned or just something that really worked out well for him, but he, he wrote that into law. You know, public authorities up until Robert Moses's time had been sunset corporations. You pay off your bonds and the tolls disappear. With Robert Moses, public authorities became open-ended entities and they collected tolls you know, in perpetuity, you know, in the 1930s and the 1940s and 50s, he had a cash flow that nobody else had. And that was his collateral to go to Wall Street and Washington and say, I need, you know, $500 million bond issues for this or that project because he had that cash flow in. So you chart Moses's ascent to an incredible amount of power, and we should say that um, Moses is largely talked about as an urban planner, but he sat on the committees of basically every physical feature of the city was sort of in his hands, and it was an astonishing amount of power for one person to have. But the musical actually starts in Moses's early life when he is just a low-level administrator who has sort of weaseled his way in through family connections, but harbors a vision for what New York could be. Could you tell me a little bit about what young Moses's vision for the city was and maybe what changed? It's tricky in a musical because we're trying to do a very condensed version of his story. And obviously there's lots of story. But in our case, we start with him as a, as a very idealistic dreamer. In fact, one of the first things we witness him do is he's quoting a piece of poetry he wrote in his Yale days. So he's very much the poet and the dreamer. And you also see the influence of his mother in the first scene. She shares some plans for a, a camp uh, that she's helping renovate and fund. Uh, and he rewrites her plans. So, so we see him as a young man, as, you know, really a visionary and very stifled, very frustrated, the smartest young man in the room with very little to do. And his mother is, you know, pulling the strings and navigating his rise in that she places him in a bureaucratic position. And then she has the ear of the governor and she gets an, a hearing for him with the governor. And the governor invites him to Albany and shares the beginnings of his plans for parks, for swimming pools, for playgrounds. And it's an interesting way into his story because those are all appealing projects and don't necessarily require the displacement of neighborhoods in order to create them. 
I don't think he he thought that that was going to be his legacy at all. That the uh, you know displacement or eminent domain. He was a very much a dreamer early on, an idealist, and I think his first big project, uh, Jones Beach, is is a you know a manifestation of that idealism. He he wanted to create uh, a place for for city dwellers to escape from New York, and he and he imagined this place completely from scratch. It was a sandbar with nothing there. And, you know, he hiked in and uh, met with the local fishermen. It's that's called Jones Beach because there was a fisherman who lived there who had a shack. His name was Jones. And and he created the, you know, this huge uh, public beach that, uh, I mean, still exists today. And it goes for miles and miles. And it has bathhouses based on, on Venetian designs. And it, you know, it's very, very well thought out as to how people would use and relax in this in this area. How he came to create Jones Beach is a fascinating story. I mean, we can only touch on it, but but the fact that he would take the train to wherever and get himself to the shore and then swim out to the sandbar and envision this whole thing, envision, you know, trucking in millions and millions of tons of sand to create this thing. I mean, that takes vision and ambition, but kind of an interesting ambition because it's about, is it about people? Is it about quality of life? I mean, I know it's arguable to people later on in his life because he was so polarizing and seizing property that, you know, displacing people. But it seems to me like that is, there is a greater good behind that kind of work, at least in his early life. He's remembered for what he's done with car culture. I mean, that's really his legacy, though. Um, and, you know, as a young man in the 19 uh, teens and 20s, you know, he was enamored with this new technology, the automobile. It was so much better than horse-drawn carriages and, you know, manure filling the streets of our cities. So, you know, just like the Internet today, it was the disruptive technology of its era and no one understood the downside. I mean, in 1920, no one, no one ever considered that, you know, 40,000 Americans would die every year in highway accidents, just like, uh, you know, we're seeing the same things with, with the internet. Now, no one considered that Facebook and Google would undermine, you know, a democratic election at some point in the future. So, you know, there, there are some wonderful parallels with, uh, what's going on in the world today, uh, and, and the world that he, uh, was entering back then. So you have hinted at the enormity of Moses's vision, and I'm curious how you portrayed, I haven't seen the show, how you portrayed the city itself in the constrained space of a stage set. Maybe Karen can speak to that. Well, one thing that happens when you're, when you're creating a piece of theater is, um, and, and the reason that I embraced the ballad that Peter wrote um, being in the, in the mode of the old protest ballads of, you know, say a Woody Guthrie is that it, it frees you from verisimilitude from a, from a specific reality. So there's no way to realize the city of New York on the stage of St. Clemens Theater. But there is a way to realize Moses' vision. Uh, so what we've done is scenically we are essentially creating a blueprint writ large. Um, we're using blue mason scaffolding and other scaffolding and girders and I-beams, and it looks like an enormous building site. Um, and we're also exposing all the raw brick of the theater and the floor is concrete. So it very much feels like a building site as opposed to depicting New York, if you will. And part of the reason that we're able to do that is because the show lives very much in kind of the legend 
of Moses and the legend of Jane Jacobs and this iconic battle between the two of them. And so it, it essentially freed us from, from having to depict New York because it would be impossible. Yeah, and we we're not singing songs about uh, you know freeways and highways. Uh, we're we're singing songs about his relationships. We've reduced it to you know, his relationship with a girlfriend slash assistant, his relationship with Nelson Rockefeller, and his relationship with Jane Jacobs. So the songs are about personal relationships, and that's really the part of the story of Robert Moses that isn't really. Uh, known. Uh, not much has, has been written about that. There's a lot written about, you know, this bridge and that parkway and, and this hydroelectric plant and this stadium and, and such. But there's really very little about him uh, on a personal relationship basis. So that's that's really where where we're going with this. So we do reference many, many of these projects, you know, like moving the Dodgers and creating a dome stadium in Queens and you know, there's a lot, we cover a lot of ground, but we don't depict it per se, because essentially we're in the mind of the man. So it should look like one huge blueprint, I hope. I think it will. <laughs> Along the lines of um, giving a blueprint or a sketch of a character who's very complex, I want to ask you about Jane Jacobs, who is a major character in this musical. She does sing. Um, it seems like she's a part of a group dance number with the Stroller Brigade, the um, collection of women in Washington Square Park who protested by actually rolling their strollers with babies and without into the middle of that space and saying that this is not just the site for a highway. This is our neighborhood. Jacobs, as Karen mentioned, is something of a deity to a lot of urbanists out there, certainly to the Strong Towns audience. What were the challenges of writing a version of her that was musical ready, much less putting it on the stage? And um, I would love to hear about the actress who performed the role. We have this wonderful, wonderful actress named Molly Pope, and people in New York will know her from oh, Joe's Pub and 54 Below, and she's just a dynamite singer and actress. She's a, a force to be reckoned with because she has to go toe-to-toe with the brilliant Constantine Maroulis, who's playing Moses. So realizing Jane, I think the trickiest thing for me is it is not a dance number at Washington Square Park, but it is a rally. I mean, she rallies the people. To me, it's so indicative of where we are right now, this moment, where we've all, we've all become activists, I, I think, over the past year, if we weren't prior. You know, the public opinion was changing, and she was the first to question not just Moses' tactics, but his vision of urban renewal and realized that a community movement could grow and and defy him and scale up large enough to prevent. I mean, th- to me, that is her vision, is, is realizing literally the power of the people, what the voice of the people could be. So what we do is we depict a public hearing in which Moses is wanting to extend Fifth Avenue um, down through Washington Square Park to create the Lower Manhattan Expressway, link all that up, and, you know, demolish large swaths of the village to to put this highway in. And so there's a public hearing first where we encounter the two of them facing off, where she sings, Don't You Dare, and he says, you know, my master plan. These the slums are a civic disgrace. <laughs> exactly. And uh, so there's a public hearing where she turns the entire room to her side against and defies him. Um, and then we next see her in Washington Square Park galvanizing the mothers with their strollers. It is only a four-band member show, so we don't have legions of mothers, but it's going to feel like we have lots of mothers because um, 
because of all the scaffolding, all the all the protest uh, banners will show up, make it feel like lots and lots of people. But you know, it's interesting. It was I, I believe there was uh, the first of November was the uh, anniversary of the last car in Washington Square Park, and that's thanks to Jane. You know, who 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 interestingly to me. And Peter has done this, has captured something about her that I think is quite unique, which is she she learned from William Kirk to think differently by walking the streets of the city, by being out in the neighborhoods and not in some high lofty perch or on Randall's Island where Moses' uh, office was or Jones Beach where his other office was. She was among them all. And I think that's what made her really understand how neighborhoods function and what what was most conducive to best lives. The, the two of them had such opposing viewpoints. She viewed the city from the street level. She walked the streets. She sat in her home and looked at people, you know, from her stoop. Moses viewed the city from aerial photography and from from planes. He saw the city. The streets were just lines on a grid to him. They weren't really neighborhoods with people, you know, involved. So diametrically opposed. And so, and we see her grapple with that. Like, is she is she the person to? make this happen. And, you know, basically she sings, she sings this wonderful song called you can't see, you can't see what the city could be. Um, all you can see is your idea of it. Anyway, it's, they're, they're bang up pair to, to, and then we have the wonderful Wayne Wilcox plays Nelson Rockefeller. And we first meet him up in the girders of, uh, the building, building of Rockefeller center. He's up in the girders with a, a reporter sharing a sandwich and you learn that he's getting, become intrigued with Moses and he wants to meet him, decides he's going to go hear Guy Lombardo play out in Jones Beach. And then the next time we meet him, he is up in a plane with Moses and Moses is showing him the Palisades Parkway that his family's land has enabled him to build. That's quite a beautiful scene where you realize, I mean, I love the parkways actually that Moses created, but I also see the folly of them in a way. But anyway, so the musicalization of it is an interesting thing because you're trying to encapsulate decades of history into the essence of the story and what are the most consequential things that, that he did that happened and that are the most dramatic and, and can build the story. So we witness his rise and his fall, and we witness Jane Jacobs' rise and her becoming the great activist that she did. It's a powerful story. It's, it's and the same with Nelson, Nelson Rockefeller. We, we see him as kind of being mentored by Moses at one point because he was 20 years younger. And then in the end, you know, uh, Rockefeller was, you know, this, this perfect storm that, that Moses just could not compete with. Um, and that, that finally brought him down. So, you know, and, and then we see a love interest who's also, who also becomes empowered uh, through the process of, of, the, of the, the story. You know, I wasn't very aware of um, Nelson Rockefeller's role in Moses's story. I think you did a beautiful job of having him serve as an avatar for what a, enabled Moses to come to power in the way that he did. Often the Robert Moses story is told so much in opposition to the Jane Jacobs story because it's just a, a beautiful operatic um, sort of juxtaposition. Tell me about how you research the other characters and what you think Bulldozer can bring to a viewer who uh, might know the sort of bare bones of the Moses story, but might not know about how he worked within the political sphere. Well, you know, Nelson Rockefeller was, you know, a young prince, you know, at the early part of, of the 20th century. Um, he was not 
a politician until much later in his life, but he was very active in a lot of economic organizations uh, that appointed positions by the government. He, he oversaw um, a South, South American Economic Council, and he, he was very interested in how public policy worked. I think working with Moses uh, early on, he was a, a, a good case study for, for Rockefeller. Later on, when, when Rockefeller became an elected politician, he had a different understanding of, of what was best for the public. Uh, than, than Moses did, even though they had worked on many projects together. Uh, Moses had actually been been hired many times by uh, various Rockefeller companies to to build and to consult. Um, you know, they knew each other quite well throughout their lives. And um, by the end of our story, when when Nelson asks for his resignation, it's something that Moses can't even fathom. He thought they were friends. Uh, he thought of himself as, you know, one of the Rockefellers, but, you know, he wasn't David Rockefeller or Lawrence Rockefeller. He wasn't a brother. That's how Rockefeller was able to uh, literally pull the rug out from under him because he not only had the power of the government behind him, but he had the power of the financial system, the bonds that Moses raised for most for for his projects for his bridges and tunnels most of those bond issues were through the Chase Manhattan Bank which was the the Rockefeller family bank he kind of came up against a wall of power there that he had never experienced from you know any other politician Roosevelt uh, LaGuardia any of the other pol- politicians that he was able to kind of bulldoze over the Rockefellers really could pull more strings than Moses could. And and the interesting thing to me about Nelson Rockefeller, in addition to all of that, is that he became very enlightened in terms of the role that the local community could play in government decisions. And of course, that also would be key to him garnering votes as an elected official. But he put all that together at some point. Um, In our story, he actually connects with Jane on that front. But he, he became interested in things that things became more important to him in terms of the community than these grandiose projects. And and the bad press that Moses was getting, um, he just couldn't afford in our story. Right. As a politician he, he couldn't he couldn't take that. And 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 I mean this is based on fact. I mean the uh, some of a, a lot of Jane Jacobs early writing, her early studies were financed by the Rockefeller Foundation. So there is a connection there. And and that's kind of what this story does. We've taken historical facts, his, historical accounts, um, and connected the dots to, to tell a personal story with these with these historical items. So Constantine Morales is your star as Robert Moses. And our listeners might know him from American Idol or his Tony-nominated performance in Rock of Ages on Broadway. Could you tell me a little bit about your choice of him for the role, his performance, and what he uniquely brought to Robert Moses as a character? Constantine Morales is a powerful performer. I mean, he, he is a true star, but also he fits beautifully the music that Peter has created. Peter said, what I really want is a Roger Daltrey. I, I think that's what he said to me, Peter. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I know. said, Roger Daltrey, not, not so much Justin Bieber, you know, something like that. <laughs> and and um, 
And Constantine immediately came to mind. He was Tony nominated for Rock of Ages. He plays six in American Idol. He's, he's a powerhouse of a performer. He can play a really towering figure. And he, he was our first choice. And, and we're, I'm just absolutely thrilled that he took it on. And, and he's completely intrigued by the man's story, in spite of all his flaws. You know, Moses was hugely flawed. A real classicist and a racist and a bully you know, and a demagogue a and you know, you know yeah. we've heard you know phrases like that lately. Mm-hmm. And I love and the thing I love about Constantine is he w- he embraces all of that, the flaws and the and the heroic stature of the man. So um, it, he's a power he's a powerhouse. It's fa- it's fantastic. <laughs> yeah, yeah. His voice is 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 just amazing because he can he can sing a song in a and it's powerful he can he can he can speak through a song and he can sing a, a, a love ballad he can and then he can sing like like i said like roger daltrey or freddie mercury or any of the great you know rock singers so and we've got the songs that that just uh highlight that that ability of his so it's it's a great match Right. I really would love to hear about the songs. I know you aren't quite at the cast recording stage, so we can't play anything for our audience. But tell me about the music. What, like, let us know what it sounds like. Well, it's it's a real wide range. I mean, there are you know kind of semi calypso ish numbers. There's a, there's a, a ragtime tune um, that's uh, set in the Central Park Casino. That uh, Vera, the love interest, uh, sings. She's a cigarette girl there, flowers and cigarette girl. Um, that, and there are, you know, straightforward uh, rock and roll numbers that, you know, I don't know. I don't know who to compare it to. You know, a combination of Pink Floyd and Talking Heads. I, I don't know. Uh, <laughs> there are ensemble pieces where we've got, you know, a, a lead part and and three part harmonies. That we're, we're really using these wonderful voices, five wonderful voices that we have as much as possible. As I was reading your scripts, it occurred to me that what's so enduring and enthralling about the Robert Moses story is how it challenges our assumption about people who seek power and what it means to be powerful. A thing we talk about a lot at Strong Towns is how the average citizen, far from being, you know, a Robert Moses, may not even think that they can change anything about their built environment. They may have never thought about how powerfully the physical form of their city they live in shapes everything about their lives, and that asphalt is not permanent, that it was is there by choice. Jane Jacobs is often held up as sort of the good way to reclaim that power, the citizen journalist who isn't a professional in the field, who's super ethical, she's plucky, and she stands up to preserve her neighborhood. And Robert Moses is often put forward as um, someone who realized that they had the power to change the world and allowed it to corrupt not just themselves, but often to utterly ruin the lives of the people who might stand in the way of their vision. You do include in the musical that famous Robert Moses quote um, about the unslumming of Manhattan that you can't make an omelet without breaking a few eggs (laughs) and the eggs are real people. (laughs) Um, So, What I want to ask is, do you think that Moses was all bad? I might put this to Karen first, because you said that Moses almost sold the soul of the city. What's redeeming about him? Well, I think I touched on this in the very, very beginning. I mean, I've biked over the Verrazano Nears. It's a magnificent bridge. You know, I've driven the parkways. I've enjoyed Jones Beach. There there are many beautiful, beautiful swimming pools in every borough. I mean, I've used the public pools here in many different neighborhoods. That's that's an amazing feat. 
so I, I guess I can appreciate certain things of his, you know, Lincoln Center, uh, the UN Plaza. Uh, but at the same time, my problem is I, I did not know, quite frankly, that he displaced a quarter of a million New Yorkers to build the Cross Bronx and the Triborough. I, I did not know that he built the overpasses two inches lower so the public buses could not get under them to keep the poorer people who have to take buses trapped within the city. I did not know that he barred black veterans from living in Stuyvesant Town. So it was a real wake-up call to receive Peter's script for me because I only knew him as, you know, Robert Moses State Park, you know, and and the Robert Moses plaque in Central Park. And, you know, I, I had a very idyllic idea of him. And then I read The Life and Death of American Cities and I started to understand what he did and at what expense. I did appreciate him first before he became a pariah to me, which is why it was e easy to get into Peter's script, which paints him as a young idealist he was. Having having seen an interview with him, I think Longine has one you can you can watch on YouTube. <laughs> I, I see that he he just he just thought he was right. There was no way for him to be wrong in his makeup. And it's like any story writ large. It's like, um, like I said, Elmer Gantry or, you know, you rise, you rise. And the power, I suppose, feeds you and enables you to have an even grander, larger, larger vision. You know, the hydroelectric dam and, um, you know, things that people could not even come close to imagining. And yet, at what cost? And, and also, not having embraced mass transit and public transportation for the car, the car that he was fascinated by that he never learned how to drive. So, you know, he was driven, I guess, by his driver. <laughs> he would hold, hold office in his car, but he, he never drove himself. So he just, he, he lived a very loftier than thou life, and he was never among the people. So he never had to experience the cost of what he was doing. It's fascinating and compelling. But, but I did appreciate what he did before I realized what a jerk he was. <laughs> Yeah, I think the the takeaway is that, you know, here's a guy who who built basically the the environment that we live in today, the the cityscape that we see not just in New York, but in many cities. His policies, his tactics were used in cities across America. All these uh, waterfront expressways and uh, raised elevated viaducts that are now finally being torn down in cities like uh, San Francisco and Seattle, those were all based on, on Robert Moses's, uh, ideas, you know, and he based his ideas on, on some of the great urban planning thinkers of, of Europe, post-war Europe, uh, Corbusier and Baron von Haussmann and, um, and, the and Radiant City. yeah, the Radiant City idea. Yeah. And that, that worked in a, in a bombed out environment where you were building from scratch, but he was always building in densely populated areas where, you know, to put a road, a highway through uh, the Bronx, you had to tear out five or six buildings in a row on every street, you know, for seven miles, you had to do that. So the human toll of that was, was enormous. Um, but had he not done these things, what kind of state, would our cities be in today? I like to imagine that, you know, of the maybe hundreds of billions of dollars of, of financing that, that Robert Moses brought into New York City, if, if just 10% had gone to public transportation, how much better off would we be today? 
you know, that's, that's kind of my, my, uh, my dream, but that's just a fantasy. Well, and not just if public transportation had been more funded, but if Jane Jacobs, um, there are people that criticize Jane Jacobs for not having the vision that Robert Moses had, but her method, her means is something that is really dear to us at Strong Towns. And I think you did a beautiful job of portraying that in this musical. I almost want you to go out and write a Jane Jacobs musical now, but I'll give you a break. Oh, okay. <laughs> well, yeah, it could yeah. be, it could be a series, you know, a, yeah. tril- a trilogy, and then we'll do the Nelson Rock. If musical actually someone contacted us from st louis a theater uh local theater group that wants to to do the show in st louis right well robert moses had a huge um for people who don't know i'm talking from st louis um and robert moses had a huge effect on our landscape the prude igo housing complex which is infamous for being one of the largest modernist disasters (laughs) um it went up in the 60s and was gone about 15 years later that is directly impacted by Moses. I don't think there's a city in America that doesn't show his impact. And it'll be interesting to see. I'd love to hear from Strong Towns uh, readers who go out and see it. I'm so grateful to all of you for talking about the show and bringing, you know, not just light to the Robert Moses and Jane Jacobs stories, but, you know, putting them in song. I think it'll be really fascinating to watch. Well, thank you so much. It's, it's not only entertaining, it's quite compelling. And, it, and, and because Jane was such uh, a community rouser, it will affect you. You'll become part of the story, I think. Well, thank you again to Peter and Karen. And that'll be it for the Strong Tones podcast. I just want to say... Thank you. And um, I want to say their new musical, Bulldozer, The Ballad of Robert Moses, is entering preview performances at the Theater at St. Clement's in New York City on November 25th, is it? Do I have that right? Yep, that's right. That's perfect. Um, tickets are on sale now at bulldozer.nyc. And I'm happy to say that um, if you've made it to the end, and we'll send an email about, out about this as well, we're offering Strong Towns readers and listeners a special discount on premium tickets if you just enter the code strong towns at checkout uh you get 45 dollars, i believe to see this fantastic show so if you need anything else feel free to reach out to me at kia at strongtowns.org thank you again karen and peter and everyone else keep doing what you can to build strong towns we need your help if you think the strong towns message is important don't keep it to yourself Pass it on. You can get more information and sign up to be a member of Strong Towns at strongtowns.org. Drastic times require what? Drastic measures, yes! Who said that? They know that America's one big pothole right now. Bill, 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 Bill. That's the story. Chuck Marone, this has been fascinating. Who made the city? I like you. I like your vision of the of the world. The United Nations Earth Summit Agenda 21. Yeah. 